Welcome to the Anchored Hope Podcast. We're so glad that you decided to join us today. Today's series is Different, Part 1, Genuine Faith, featuring Michael Davis. Well, today we, we are going to start a new series called Different, but to set this up, I have a question for you, and I want you to answer this question. And this is, this is a question that needs to be answered, especially from us Christians, for those of us who follow Jesus. Uh, we have to have an answer to this question. But the thing is, is, I don't want you to answer this question right now. I don't expect you to have an answer to this question after service or even this week. I really want you to spend some time thinking on this question. I want you to spend some time journaling on this question. I want you to spend some time coming back the next few weeks as we're in this series and breaking this question apart. Because it's a super important question. It's, it's, it's a question that has to be answered by those that follow Jesus. And for those of us who don't follow Jesus, I think the world that doesn't follow Jesus is wanting to know the answer to this question. So the question is, are you ready for it? It's going to be on the screen. What makes you different? What makes you different? Now, I'm not talking about what makes you unique. You know what I mean? Some of you are in your head, you're thinking, well, I'm a Leo who loves to bake. That's not what we're talking about, okay? Not talking about what makes you unique or makes you different in your character or as a person. I'm talking about what makes you different as a Christian from the rest of the world. When it comes to you as a believer and a follower of Christ, what makes you stand out? What makes you different than the rest of the world? What makes you different from your coworkers? What makes you different than from your neighbors? What makes it di- you different from your family members who don't follow Christ? What makes you different um, as a father? What makes you different as a mother? What makes you different as a son or as a daughter? What is it that makes you different as a business owner? What is it that makes you different in the season, in the realm, in the arena that you sit in from the rest of the world? And you know, non-Christians, they want an answer to this question. Because this is non-Christians, if you're here today, you got drugs, somebody promised you lunch and donuts, and you didn't know where you're taking. If you've been kidnapped and brought here today, or if you're watching online and somebody just turned this on and they said, look, we're not watching Yo Gabba Gabba until we have church, you know, I'm sorry that they drug you here, but you want to know this question too, right? Because non-Christians, their biggest hang-up is Christians aren't any different than anybody else. As a matter of fact, in some regards, they're worse than everybody else. Because there's some non-Christians that know some Christians who are more fearful than anybody else they know. They know some non-Christians who are more stressed out than anybody else they know. There are some Christians who are more angry, more prideful than anybody else they know. And they're looking at Christians going, what's so special about them? What's so different about them? They're not any different than anybody else. As a matter of fact, they're worse. They're like judgmental on steroids or worried on steroids. Are you kidding me? There's nothing different about them. And for non-Christians who you know, look at this question and go, yeah, you get them, Pastor. I know, I am. Uh, for those non-Christians who may be watching or here today, here's the, thing, here's the question that I want you to ask yourself. The question you need to ask is, do you want to be different? Would you like to be different? Or would you like to be like everybody else? 
Would you like to fret like everybody else? Would you like to worry like everybody else? Would you like to be fearful like everybody else? That every time something happens in the world or something changes or something gets a little twisted, the reaction of everybody else is your reaction. You're a follower. You're not a leader. Would you like to be a leader? Would you like to be different? Would you like to stand out? This is the question that has to be answered. And this is the question we're going to look at for the next couple weeks. And this is, kind of a, this is kind of our Lent sermon series. You know, for the next 40 days, we were supposed to have an Ash Wednesday service on Wednesday, but we had to cancel it. But, you know, we, we're in this time of preparation before Easter. We're in this time of reflecting and fasting and praying. And I want us to really spend some time thinking on this question. Because this is a game changer. This is something the world is wanting to know and something as Christians that we have to answer. But so to answer this question for us, we're actually going to study the book of Peter in this series. Everything that we talk about is going to come from 1 Peter. So if you need some you know, inspiring things to read, read 1 Peter. Read it one, two, five times, okay? It's not that long, but read through 1 Peter because that's what we're going to begin to break down. But before we look at 1 Peter, I need you to understand the context of 1 Peter. I want you to understand why 1 Peter was written and the context and the time that it was written at. You may or may not know who Peter is. Just to give you a rundown of who he was, he, he was the one that was probably loved most by Jesus and the one who gave Jesus the most trouble. I mean, Peter was a screw-up. Peter was an idiot, okay? Peter did a lot of bad, bad things, but, and you would imagine that you're like, if you were looking at the story of Peter and keeping a tally of how many times he betrayed Jesus or how many times he did something wrong or how many times he ran in fear, how many times he didn't listen to Jesus, you'd be like, this could not be Jesus's possible right-hand man. This could not be the next generation, the first, first Christian leader in the Christian church. And guess what he is? Because something changed in Peter. And what changed in Peter is that when Peter saw Jesus die on the cross, but then three days later he saw him alive again, everything changed for Peter. When he saw Jesus defeat death, he's like, well, that's it. I'm all in. And all of a sudden the fear went away. And all of a sudden the worry went away. And all of a sudden the doubt went away. And Peter gave his whole life to Christ. It was like his sanctification moment. So he gave his life to Christ, and then Peter just kind of becomes this leader of the Christian church. And so he, he preaches at Pentecost, and the Spirit comes down, and thousands of people heard P Peter preach. And that's important for the context of this letter that we're going to be getting in today. So thousands of people came to Christ, were filled with the Spirit, and heard Peter preach. So he's very well known. He became so well known that when it came to the uh, Jerusalem council where they decided what they were going to do with Gentiles, whether they were going to put the old covenant and the Jewish law on the Gentiles, Peter was invited and Peter came and he spoke up and he kind of represented the Gentiles even though he was a Jew himself. And so Peter is very well respected. Peter is very well known. He's the leader of the Christian church. Now, Fast forward about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, all right? So 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, about 64 A.D. is where we're at, okay? And there's a new ruler of Rome, a new emperor, and his name is Nero. Some of you may have heard of Nero. You may have studied him in history class. You, you may have heard the stories. Nero, to this day, is one of the most villainous uh, rulers that we've ever had in, in modern history. Nero was a sick man. He killed his mom, he killed his first wife, and he killed his second wife. That's how sick he was. 
And he loved architecture. He wanted to rebuild Rome in his image. He had all these ideas. He loved to build things. He loved to break them down. He must have not had Legos when he was growing up as a child. But he was a very, very sick man. And so there comes a time in 64 AD where there was the great fire of Rome. Again, you may have heard this story. There was the great fire of Rome. And what happened was is there was a merchant shop next to Roman's chariot stadium that caught on fire. Yes, that sounds exactly how it sounds. Basically, a t-shirt shop caught on fire at the arena. That's what happened, okay? So down where the blues play, let's just pretend this is St. Louis. Down where the blues play, all of a sudden, somebody you know, in the, in the t-shirt shop lit a fire and half of St. Louis burned down. That's basically what happened, okay? So the great fire at Rome, this fire starts at the merchant shop, and the fire burns for six days. It's just out of control. It just catches almost all of Rome on fire. And then they get it under control. And then somehow, somehow, it reignites. And it restarts, and it burns for another three days. By the end of this nine-day period, two-thirds of Rome is burnt to the ground. Two-thirds of Rome. I mean, this is the epicenter of the world. This is like it, and it's burned to a crisp, completely ruined, completely torn down, and it's just left in shambles. Now, everybody points to Nero and think Nero did it. Why do people think that Nero did it? Because like I just explained, he was a lover of architecture. He wanted to build out Rome. He wanted to rebuild Rome. He wanted to tear some things up and rebuild them up. And he went to the Senate with his plans to rebuild Rome, and the Senate actually denied him. They said, no, we're not going to do that. We can't pay for that. I'm sorry, no. And so the belief is is that Nero took that no from the Senate not so well, and he lit He lit that fire, and it burned, and then when it died down, he reignited it, and it burned some more. So that was the belief. So everybody started turning and pointing their finger to Nero and going, we know you did this. We know you did this. And so Nero all of a sudden had a target on his back. So guess what he did? He passed the buck. He turned it on somebody else. And at that time, Christians were already persecuted. At that time, Christians were already tortured in the Colosseum for people's entertainment. And so Nero said, do you know who it was? It was those Christians. You know, we all dislike those Christians. You know, those Christians, they messed up a lot of stuff in the last 30 years. Ever since that Jesus died and rose again, and the disciples have been telling that story to everybody, those Christians have caused a lot of trouble. You know who's actually behind this? It's those Christians. So Christians became public enemy, number one. So what happened next was really sick. This is the height of persecution for Christians. Nero would catch Christians, just to give you an idea of what Christians were going through at the time. Nero would catch Christians, and he would put dead animal skin on them and throw them into a cage and then throw in wild dogs and watch the dogs rip them apart. This was Nero's entertainment. He would do this at parties. Another thing he would do at his parties, he would throw parties and he would throw shindigs and invite over all the rich and the famous people of Rome. And he would take Christians that he would capture, he would take them alive, he would dip them in hot wax, he would tie them by their hands and put them on a tree and put a wick on them and light them like a candle. And that was how he lit his parties. He would have 20 to 30 Christians hanging in the trees on his outside villa, lit on fire. So the next time your Nancy Nazarene tells you about how bad it is in 2021, just send her this sermon, okay? Because it was bad. It was really bad for Christians back then in 64 AD. And so this is what Christians are going through. Christians are not supported by the government. 
They are public enemy number one. They are being captured and tortured, either in the Colosseum for people's entertainment or by Nero, being a, a human candle at his party. And so all of these Christians are in hiding. They don't have a, a New Testament Bible. They're not, they don't have the Old Testament Bible. They don't have church buildings to meet in. The temple at this point has been torn down and destroyed. And they are out on their own just waiting to hear from somebody what they should do next. They're in fear of their lives. They're scared. They're worried. And they don't know what to do. So here comes Peter. Peter, this leader that everybody knew by reputation, if nothing else, because of what he said at Pentecost. Nothing else by reputation because of what he said at the Jerusalem Council. Everybody knows Peter. Everybody trusts Jesus. This is the guy who walked with Jesus, who saw Jesus with his own eyes, die and raised again. We can trust this guy. And so Peter goes, you know what? It's time for me to write a letter. Now remember at this time, letters were not something that people just got out and did like you and I did today. Peter couldn't read and Peter couldn't write. Peter was a dumb fisherman, like most people, okay? When you wanted to write a letter, you had to go to a scribe. You had to orally dictate to them, and then the scribe would write it down, and that costs money. So that's why we don't have, people are like, you know, why don't we have a ton of letters in, in the New Testament? Why aren't there, why is there only like two letters from Peter? Because it took a lot of time and effort and money to write a letter. It's not like Peter just got out his pen and paper and started doodling. He had to find a scribe. So he goes through all this work of finding a scribe, getting a scribe, writing this letter, and then he sends it to these Christians who are in hiding, scattered out all among these different regions. And what would happen is, is the scribe would send it to another scribe, and then the local scribe would gather people together and read the letter out loud, and then the rest of it would be traveled by word of mouth. And they go, hey, Peter sent us a letter. We all heard what it said from the local scribe, and this is what it said. So everybody understands the context, the time that we're in, right? We're in a very dangerous time. Nero is emperor. Things are very bad. And all of a sudden, everybody gathers together, and they get this letter from Peter. And they're like, all right, this is our time. We're going to get instructions. We're going to get direction from our leader, Peter. He's going to tell us exactly what it is we need to do. And so they all gather together to hear this letter. And this is what Peter tells them. Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces. Now, at first glance, if you just read this on your own, you probably wouldn't think much of that part. But there's, there's a lot there that we have to kind of break down. He says, hello, I am Peter. Yes, the Peter that you're thinking of, the Peter that walked with Jesus, the Peter that was the apostle of Jesus. And I am writing you, and he calls them exiles, exiles scattered throughout the land. Now, you have to understand what this word actually means. This word exile in the Greek means this. Strangers, aliens, someone not from this world. So think about this for a minute. If you've just kind of glanced over this verse or moved through it real quick. Peter, they're waiting on this letter from Peter. They're like, oh my goodness, what's it going to say? I hope it's so full of hope. I hope he tells us we can grab our pitchforks and go fight. I mean, what's he going to tell us to do? Maybe we can storm the capital. And then they're waiting and they're waiting. And Peter, it starts off with a joke. Basically, this is what it says. Peter says, hello, God's aliens not from this world. And the people who are listening to the scribe going, uh-uh, we want our money back. You didn't get that right. We're waiting in danger. Like, this is serious. This is scary. We're becoming human candles. There's no way Peter started off his letter, what's up, aliens not from this world, LOL. Laffy face emoji, right? There's no way Peter started off his letter in that way. But he did. It's exactly how he started it. Hello, aliens. Hello, strangers. Hello, you foreigners not from this world. 
Now, why would Peter do that? This is a huge moment. You don't have, I mean, we're paying by the minute here, Peter. We only have so many things to say. This is not a time for jokes, but it wasn't a joke. What Peter was doing is he was trying to explain something very specific to them. He was being smart, very intentional. He knew that this letter was important. And what he was saying from the beginning of his letter was, I need to remind you of something. You are not from this world. This place is not your home. You are an alien. You are a stranger. You are a weirdo. You are different. And this is not your home. And then he goes on. And this is what he says. He goes, you exiles who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace, and peace be yours in abundance. Let me translate that for you. Translation, hey y'all. Okay, that's basically what he's saying, all right? Just a long way, very, very nice way that he got there, very holy, but that's basically what he's saying. So he says, hey, you aliens, you people not from this world, hey, y'all, how y'all doing? How you Christians doing? And then he, he goes on and he, he says to them next, he says to them, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, remember the context. These people are being captured and tortured, and Paul, he starts off his letter, and he goes, Hey, you aliens not from this world, how y'all doing? Praise God! To which the people listening to this letter are going, Praise God for what? Where are you living, Peter? Where are you at? I don't know if you've heard of our situation, but there's nothing worth praising God about. Praise God is not the thing that we were thinking. But that's how Peter starts off. And why did he do this? Because of this, what he says next. In his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he again reminds them of the whole reason they call themselves Christians. He says to them, remember how merciful God was on us? Remember how merciful God was when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Do you remember that? And do you remember through his great mercies what we were promised? Nothing here on this earth. He says, but we were giving new birth, meaning we were adopted. We became children of God. We became part of God's family. And then we were giving a living hope. The Greek translation of that, that combination word, living hope, means eternal hope. Or hope that does not end. It means there is something beyond this life, beyond this place, that we now are given and promised that we can put our hope in. And he says, and this is all made possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because remember how we saw Jesus die on the cross and then three days later, he was alive again? Because of that, we have this living hope. We have this thing to look forward to. We have this inheritance that nobody can take away from us. And that's what he says next. He talks about this inheritance. And he says we are given this inheritance that can never perish. That never spoils. That never fades. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So, let's break this down. This is essentially what Peter is saying. He's saying, hello aliens, how are y'all doing? Hey, What's the worst that can happen? And knowing that they would answer, uh, death, he says, well, the worst that could happen is they send you home. 
Because remember what we've been promised. Remember what we've been given by God. The worst thing they could do is send you to heaven. Because remember, that's what God gave us. That's what God promised us. Through Jesus Christ, we are now saved and we are children of God. And what we are promised is an inheritance in heaven that can never spoil, that can never fade, that these bad guys can never take away from you. And so the worst that they could do is kill you. And the worst that that means is they send you home where you're really from. Because you are not from this world. You are different. I mean, you could just put a period on it there, saved a little bit of money, been done. But see, you don't like that answer, do you? No. You're not saying amen, so I know you don't like the answer. Jeez, you know. I don't know how the comment section's doing, but you don't like that answer, right? But I don't want to hear that I'm going to die. Why do we have such a problem with death? What is it that we're so afraid of when it comes to death? Why is it that we want to avoid it so badly? Why is it that we're so scared of it happening? If that's the worst that could happen to you, we're like, because that's the end. But see, that's what's so weird. Is, isn't it not the end? Isn't that what we believe? Isn't it as children of God and followers of Jesus that we believe that it's not the end? It's, it's just the beginning? That this time on this earth is just like that song said, like a shooting star passing through the night? So what are you so afraid of? What are you so worried about? What are you so scared? Peter challenges him with this question and goes, are you really that different from the rest of the world or not? Because if you were different, this wouldn't bother you, this wouldn't concern you, this wouldn't scare you, because you know where you are headed. And so he faces him with this question. And what Peter says next is, is very important. This is what everything hinges on. It goes, talks about this inheritance and everything, and we should really hear that message and go, oh, you're right, there's nothing to worry about, because I promised heaven, I promised eternal life, I promised that through my relationship with God. But he says something next, very important. He goes, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith, very important, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He, so he says, hey, what do you have to worry about? You guys are not from this world. If anything, they are just sending you back to where you actually belong. He says, but let's remember where this inheritance comes from. It is through faith, through faith. So there is a prerequisite, faith. Faith is what gets us eternal life. Faith is how we are insured this inheritance that's waiting for us. So really the question that we all have to ask ourselves as Christians or people who are interested in eternal life is, do you have faith? Do you have complete trust in God? Because that's what faith is. I'm very specific about this all the time. There are not amounts of faith. Well, I have a little bit of faith. No, it's not a little faith or a big faith. It's faith period. Do you have complete trust in God or not? That is faith. Do you have complete trust in God? Now, the truth is, that's a tough question, isn't it? Because everybody thinks they got faith till they need faith, and then you ain't so sure. I had an experience last weekend. Uh, I went to a CrossFit competition in Kansas City on a team. It's my first one uh, since pre-COVID and everything else, and so you know, I go in, and, you know, I, I, I thought I was pretty fit. You know, everybody kind of thinks they're fit. I mean, if I asked you that question, you know, because it, it's kind of the same thing. Do you think you're fit? Some of you would go, I don't want to talk about it. Others of you, you would go, you know, like, yeah, you know, I think I'm fit. There's like 20 of us CrossFitters in the room. Every single one of them thinks they're fit. 
including Bo. I mean, you think that they're fit, you know what I mean? But the thing is, is you don't really know if you're fit until you test your fitness. Remember in school, I, at least I remember this, I don't even think they do anymore. Remember fitness tests in PE class, right? They still do them? You had to do fitness, you know, te- you know pull-ups and push-ups and all that stuff. What a sham. Anyway, uh, you would do a fitness test to test if you were really fit. And so last weekend, I went to this CrossFit competition in Kansas City, and I'm going in thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, you know? And everybody on my team was in their 20s, you know? And I'm like 33, and in CrossFit years, that's old. And so I'm like, I'm going to do okay. Man, I went in there, and let me tell you something. I, people were tearing their shirts off and pants off and just people had muscles in places I didn't even know you could have muscles. You know what I mean? People were wearing skin-tight clothing like it was another set of skin. You know what I mean? And I mean, just like in the warm-up area. I mean, I just, I felt like a puny individual, you know? And we, we, we did good. We did okay. But, you know, it's like that's something that applies to this. Like you can think you're fit, but you really don't know you're fit until you test your fitness. And the same goes for your faith. I could ask you, do you have faith? Sure I do. Are you sure? How could you really know if you have faith unless you test your faith? And coincidentally, this is what Peter says next. He goes on, and he says to them, in all this, again, remember the context that they are in, in all this, in everything that Nero is doing, in all the persecution that you are going through, in all the support that you don't have, through this pandemic, through everything that you are going through, in all of this, all of this that you are going through is good. In all of this, he goes on, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you have had, all, you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But there's a good thing that's coming with these trials. These have come that the proven genuineness of your faith. Peter says, you know what? You all think you have faith. Let's put it to the test. Well, how do we do that, Peter? Well, it's a good thing we have trials in this world. Because trials are a great way to test our faith. And you know what? When you go through a trial, when you go through all of these things, rejoice. Because you've just entered into a test. And you know what this test is going to tell you? This test is going to tell you whether your faith is genuine or not. Now, that's the thing though, right? Is we can go through faith tests, and in the same way we can find out that our faith is genuine, we could also find out that our faith is not. Ooh, now that's tough. What if we find out our faith isn't as genuine as we thought? I was thinking about this this week, and I was thinking about what non-genuine faith looks like. What does it look like when we do find out that our faith isn't as genuine as we thought? And I I, I thought of three non-genuine types of faith, okay? These are just, these are Michaelisms, okay? Three non-genuine types of faith. This is the first one. The first non-genuine type of faith is inherited faith. Inherited faith is faith that you got from your mama and your daddy. You know, I grew up in the church. My dad's a pastor. I grew up, and I don't know a time where I didn't know about God. I didn't have this dramatic moment where I turned away from sin 
and, and, and ran down and, and gave my life to Jesus, I really always have a hard time with that question because I just don't remember a time where I didn't know God and love God. However, I do remember a point when I was a teenager where the only reason I went to church is because my mom and dad made me. There was a point in time in church, in church where I was just there because I was supposed to be there. And then I turned 18, and then I graduated from high school, and then I went to college, and then mommy and daddy didn't tell me to go to church anymore. Mommy and daddy didn't tell me I had to tithe. Mommy and daddy didn't tell me I had to serve. Guess what? I had to make that decision for myself. And you know, I remember that there was a point in time where I was jealous of all the new people and all the sinners at our church. Because I had been doing this my whole life, yet they seemed to be way more excited to be there than me. And I'm like, where in the world are they getting this energy from? Why in the world are they so generous? Why in the world do they want to serve so much? It's because you know what? Their relationship with Jesus was their own. My relationship with Jesus was through my parents. And you know, there comes a time, teenagers... There comes a time when you graduate high school. There comes a time when you go to college. There comes a time in your 20s where mommy and daddy's faith isn't going to get you anywhere. Where mommy and daddy's faith ain't going to get you to heaven. It ain't going to get you through life. The thing is about inherited faith is you can't get through life living your family's faith. There has to come a time where your faith journey becomes your own. Inherited faith is non-genuine. And we as parents, we as Christians, we need to train up our kids to own their faith. And I'm very serious about this. If you, if you come to our church, you're going to kind of figure this out. Our youth ministry and our children's ministry is not built on holding your child's hand. We are not responsible for your child's faith and bringing up. You are parents. We're with them for an hour a, day, an hour a week. You live with them. <laughs> It's your job to train up your children. We are just partners in helping you do that. You have to train up your children to eventually own their relationship with God. Or guess what? They will leave the home and they will become young adults and they will walk away from faith because they were never equipped or given the chance for their faith journey to be their own. So there's inherited faith. And then there's also a different kind of faith. There's Gucci faith. Again, Michaelisms. I made this up, all right? There's Gucci faith. Gucci faith is faith that's in style. Gucci faith is faith that looks good on you, that fits you, that you said, ooh, I like that. I'll try that, right? Gucci faith is when you're like, I'm going to go to this church, and it's a cool church. I heard they're getting an espresso machine by Easter. You know, there's music, and it fits me, and I like it, and it's only an hour, and the pastor, he wears jeans. And so, I mean, it's Gucci. I'm Gucci. Jesus is Gucci. It's all good. But here's the thing about Gucci faith. Gucci faith don't last very long because eventually the moment that Gucci faith goes out of style, you stop wearing Gucci. The thing is about Gucci is the moment that it costs you something, you walk away from it. See, Gucci faith doesn't last very long because Gucci faith is surface level. Gucci faith is shallow faith. And Gucci faith comes and goes. Gucci faith is like, I'm all in. Sign me up. Let's do this. And then something happens in your life, and you're like, never mind, I'm out. I lied. That's Gucci faith. Then there's a, a third kind of faith. Counterfeit faith. Counterfeit is just how it sounds. It's faith that has no value. It's fake. It's not real. 
counterfeit faith is a faith that really doesn't get us anywhere either. Because the thing, the thing is about uh, counterfeit faith is the moment things are uncertain, you're not certain about God. When things are good, you're good. But when you need it, when faith is necessary, your faith really shows its true value. It's nothing. Because the moment things are uncertain, you become uncertain about God. And you walk away. These are dangerous, dangerous places to be. That will cost you. And so the thing that Peter's saying is he's like, hey, look, there's a test. This, is, this trial is a test. And it's here to tell us something. It's here to tell us whether our faith is genuine or not. It's here to tell us if our faith is genuine or if it's just inherited faith or if it's just Gucci faith or if it's just counterfeit faith. And you're going to find out what your faith is really made of. Now here's the thing. Many of us this last year have had trials. Many of us this last year have had experiences. My goodness, you couldn't ask for a better year, could you? I mean, you would talk about trials. Man, we've had a pandemic. We had a lovely election. Went great. We've had things happen in our schools, things happen at home. We've had marriage struggles. We've had financial struggles. There's been death. We've had quite the year. So let me ask you something over this last year. Do you have faith? Do you have complete trust in God? Did you listen to God this last year? What did he tell you? Is your faith genuine? Or is it not? Is it a counterfeit? Is it Gucci? Is it inherited? What'd you find out? You need to know. Because there's a test coming. When I was in college, we had to take this big test. I went to Mid-American Nazarene University to get my degree in ministry. Four years of school, but the last semester before I graduated, three weeks before graduation, I had to take this huge test that took like four hours. And it was supposed to be over everything that we'd learned the last four years. So Bible, Bible, theology, characters, church history, the whole thing, right? And they're like, if you don't pass this test, it doesn't matter how much money you've given us or how many classes you've taken. If you don't pass this test, you don't get your degree. You can't be a pastor. That's it. So this was a huge, huge test. So my college professor, one of them was very kind, he put on a pretest. It was like a semi-version of the test that we were going to take. It was a pretest, right? So we went in this one night, Monday night. He's like, we're just going to be here for two hours. You're going to take this pretest, and I'm going to tell you how you did. So we went in, we took this pretest before the big test, because the big test is the only test. So this was to give us a little time. And I went in, I took the pretest, and I failed that test. <laughs> not good. <laughs> not kind of freaked out. I'm like, I'm not going to be a pastor. I've given all this money to Mid-American Nazarene University, and I'm not going to get my degree? Are you kidding me? And I was freaking out, because I'm a terrible test taker, man. I mean, that's my excuse. I could have just been stupid and not listening for the past four years, but the point is, is that I didn't know what was going to happen. Now, I'll never forget what Randy Cloud told me. He said, hey, Mike, don't worry, man. He goes, this is just a pretest. This is just a pretest before the big test. It's fine. Now you know what you don't know. 
You know, that's the thing about pretests. A pretest helps you know what you don't know. A pretest helps you know what you don't know. And the thing is, is that for every single one of us, when you meet Jesus, that's the test, folks. That's it. No redos, no take backs, no try agains. No extra credit. That's true, too. Unless you're a Mormon, they believe in that stuff. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> stick to the script, stick to the script. Mike, this is why you and I are not good together. Anyway. Yeah, baby. <laughs> a pretest tells you what you don't know. Here's the thing when you meet Jesus, that's it. And so, what Peter is saying to us is hey, here's the great news. If you come and you find out that your faith isn't genuine as you thought, if you found out it's Gucci, it's inherited, it's a counterfeit, if you found out it's not genuine, take heart. Don't be worried. This is just a pretest. And the great thing is about the pretest is the pretest tells you what you don't know. And here's the thing about faith. A faith that, can be, a faith that is tested is a faith that can be trusted. A faith that is tested is a faith that can be trusted. And so Peter goes, you know what? These trials, shoot, worst thing they can do is send you home. But you know what? Let's talk about that for a minute. When you go home, there's going to be a test, and it's the final test. So let's use these trials to test the genuineness of our faith. Let's use these trials to tell us what we don't know about ourselves. And a faith that is tested is a faith that can be trusted. And you know what? Once you test your faith, you know what you have the opportunity to do? When you test your faith, you can refine your faith. You have an opportunity to take what you don't know, to take what you don't believe, to take what you struggle with, and to work on it. You need to figure out for yourself how genuine your faith actually is. And if it's not then you need to invest in your faith journey. And what that looks like, I can't tell you because it's not my faith journey. But you need to know, and you need to figure it out, and you need to do what you need to do to, 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 to make it genuine. That's on you. And the goal is, is that all of us would have a genuine faith. And what does a genuine faith look like? Peter says in the very next verse, he goes, the goal, what we're trying to get to, what our genuine faith we want to build up to is a faith that looks like this. It's a faith that, oh, maybe it's not in there. It's a faith that though you have not seen him and love him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's what he says. There it is. Though you don't see him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe him. And though, though there are trials, you are filled with joy. Peter says, that's the goal. That's what I want to be. That's what a genuine faith looks like. Let me ask you something. How genuine is your faith? 
He told this to a group of Christians who were being tortured and hunted by the government. He told this to a group of people who barely were in the position to take care of themselves or to feed their families. He told them, you guys, you guys should have inexpressible joy. Are you kidding me? Do you know what we're living in? He goes, yeah, I know what you're living in. But it'll pass. This is short. Worst thing that happens is it kills you. And if it kills you, it sends you home. But man, let's talk about that. When you go home, there's a test waiting for you. So you should use this time here on this earth to test your faith and know. Are you able to not see him but love him? Are you able to not see him and believe him? And though there are trials, are you filled with joy? Some of you, if you were honest, you would say, no, I am not. Okay, well, what do you want to do with that? What do you want to do with that? Because one day we're going to be tested on this. And the thing is, is that when Jesus talks about this, he talks about there being a narrow gate. When he talks about this, he talks about the people who were neither hot or neither cold, and they sat in this realm he calls lukewarm. And the warning that is throughout Scripture in Jesus' teachings is there are going to be people who called themselves Christians that will not be in heaven. And they will look at Jesus and go, but I thought. And Jesus was going to go, it's going to go, what do you mean you thought? I was hungry and you didn't clothe me. I was naked. I was sick. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. There were these trials that told you that your faith was not as genuine. There were these trials that really proved to you and told you that you don't believe me, that you don't love me, that you don't fully trust me. It was right there. And all you said was, I can't wait for this year to be over. Well, what now? I love this song that we're going to close with today. I love the lyrics, and I'm going to invite the band to come back up. But the lyrics of the song are, Give me faith to trust what you say, that your good and your love is great. I'm broken inside. I give you my life. See, here's the thing, man. You don't give God more of your life when things are good. You don't. You don't. You only give God more of your life when you're broken inside. You only give God more of your life when you're in the valley. You only give God more of your life when you're going through trials. These trials, God didn't make them happen. These are not God's created tests. But God can take anything bad and use it for His good. And He has probably taken this year and gone, okay. Let's use this, and let's find out if they are really different than everybody else. So are you different? Have you been different? If you're not different and your faith is not as genuine as you thought, it's okay. This is not the final test. This is the pretest. Now you know what you didn't know. 
And now it's in your hands to decide what you are going to do next. And for all the non-Christians in the room, they were like, I was not expecting a message about hell and heaven. Who have been on the fence about following Christ. Here's what I want to say to you. I have no other hope to give you. The world is a dark place. It's going to get better and it's going to get worse and it's going to get better and it's going to get worse and that's life. And I can't give you any motivational speech that's ever going to stick. The only thing I can tell you that I know is there was a man who was sent to this earth that was the son of God. And he died for my sins and your sins. And he has willingly opened his arms and said, I will adopt you into my family. All you have to do is believe me and trust me. And he was put to death for that. And that should have been the end of it. But three days later, as he predicted, he rose from the grave. I can't give you any other hope besides there's a person who lived, predicted their death, and their resurrection, and was right. I'm going to follow that guy. Because if he can beat death for himself, and he promises to beat death for me, I'm Gucci. That sounds good to me. I would like to go with that person. And the thing is, is I don't know what other alternative you want. There's other alternatives out there never seen him work but I love what this song also says that we're going to sing this song also says that though I'm in this, this place where I'm broken inside though I'm in this place where I'm searching for answers and I don't know what's right or wrong I believe that God's spirit will work in me, I believe that God can work for me, I, I believe that God can do something in me. Would you be willing to just give God a chance? Would you be willing? I mean, this is a pretest. You have nothing to lose. If I'm wrong, you just were way more hopeful than you really should have been while you were here on this earth. <laughs> but if I'm right, there's only one test left. How do you want that to go? I hope that every single one of us, every single one of us would put our trust in Jesus. And like Peter said, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. If you'd like to support Anchored Hope, you can make a donation at anchoredhope.church forward slash give. If you'd like to connect with someone from Anchored Hope, go to anchoredhope.church forward slash hot. Thank you for listening and God bless.